0: in your Bibles, please, to First Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, sorry, verse 18. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. And may God bless the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Thomas Manton writes this, a devoting and giving up of ourselves to the conduct of his word and spirit, uh, and he will say before that, is a mark of faith. Certainly all those that believe... In the Son of God, put themselves into His hands, taking His will for the rule of their lives and actions, and looked to be kept by His power unto salvation. 2 Corinthians 8, 5 And this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. His word is their rule. Galatians six sixteen, As many as walk according to this rule. His spirit is their guide, Romans 8.14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. His precepts show their duty, and by the strength of his spirit they perform it, so that faith in the Son of God is such a trusting ourselves in his hands as begets fidelity to him. Well, that's pretty well said. So as we begin this, I think, final sermon in our series on saving faith, uh, we rehash for a moment what we have done, where we have been. As I understand it, it has been something like 21 sermons thus far on saving faith. I don't know if Josh would, would validate that number if he's prepared to do that, but I believe it's 21 as I've counted them up in my notes. And beloved, it's been, I think, good, solid, and necessary work for us to do. Uh, we started out, we said we were going to follow, because we we think our standards are biblical, we're going to follow Larger Catechism 72. And so we heard from Larger Catechism that justifying faith is a saving grace. It's wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, that he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel but receiveth and resteth upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation and so we started out and we said It's a saving grace. It's a gift, this faith. It is wrought in the heart. It is inward, not outward. It's primarily inward, with an outward expression. Third, we said that it is for sinners. It is for sinners. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ, it's for sinners. There's no way you could if it was required. We said that it was a work of God's spirit and by means ordinarily of the word of God that it is by his word and spirit that the people of God are delivered from the wrath to come. We said also that it was a work of convincing and we talked about the offense of the cross. Beloved, if you're coming to church to feel better every week you're at the wrong place and you're after the wrong thing. There is a convincing work of the Spirit that continues on in the people of God. And the offense of the cross is as real to those who are regenerated as it is unreal to those who are not. It is spoken of both as justifying and saving. And we contrasted, didn't we, the larger catechism with the work that we do in our confession of faith in the chapter on saving faith. And we said that very often today people stop at justifying faith, which is the same faith as saving faith, but they don't recognize that God has given more than justification. And that in saving faith, there are so many other things that obtain for the people of God. And we talked about being saved from and unto. Then also, we said that we recognized human and creaturely disability. That there is none that can save but Christ. And then we talked about knowledge and assent and trust. And we spent several weeks on trust. And with that word trust we recognized that there are all over the Bible. Old and New Testament regarding faith in God, faith in Christ. That there are these verbs of motion that draw us to and unite us to Jesus Christ. I believe it was William Gurnall that talked about propositions can give you some assurance. They can give you some comfort. But it is coming to Christ that saves you. We come to that whole Christ as he's presented in scripture. And so yeah, we want the propositions. We want the knowledge. But in all of those, we want to come to a Savior that is flesh and blood and God himself. And so those verbs of motion what were they again? We, we talked about receiving, coming, following, drawing near, abiding, resting, rolling upon Christ, committing unto him, looking to Christ, eating and drinking of Christ, and finally from Hosea chapter 2, knowing him in the marital sense. All of those verbs draw us to and unite us to Christ. And then in these last few weeks, we've looked at six substandard faiths we talked about devil faith and we characterize it as trembling faith there is a proper trembling but there is an improper trembling trembling all by itself is not what we're after and then we said temporary faith is substandard miracle faith substandard far enough faith doesn't cut it community faith not quite there and crowded faith Certainly, not there. And so that's where we have been. It's quite a path, quite a swath. We've got through this wonderful doctrine of saving faith. And I promised you one more sermon uh, on <clears throat> the marks of faith. May I say that we could speak as long as we have already on the marks of saving faith? But we, we want to bring everything to, a, to an epilogue, if you will, and then move on next week with verses 22 through the end of the chapter. So let me say as we, be, as we introduce these marks of saving faith that we can all say with confidence that none of us will have these marks in their perfection. The marks of saving faith apply to a weak but saving faith. A weak, but saving, faith. This is important. What we're about to embark on is showing the marks of faith. They're going to look to the untrained ear like works. Well, we're not. We've not simply traded in saving faith for merit. But we are going to present, Lord willing, what the Bible says faith looks like. You may describe for someone. Uh, who's coming to your house for the first time and you may say well we're the third house on the left we've got red brick and then we've got siding and then we've got this color roof and you'll find these cars in the driveway these are the marks of our house this is what it looks like this is how you will know our house from a different house and the you know the roof might have some chinks in it some holes in it the bricks might be chipped the siding might need paint they may be imperfect, but you know what? That's still siding, it's still a roof, it's still bricks. Our saving faith, beloved, well, it has much that yet that it yet lacks. Only our Lord Jesus Christ had that ultimate and perfect confidence in his Father that we ought to have in him. So, what I'm about to tell you these aren't you know seven steps for making sure you have saving faith. Or you better measure up. And if you don't. And yet these are marks. Marks as we have said. Marks of true saving faith in Christ. And them as distinguished. These marks as distinguished from the cheap imitations. That we've talked about over the last few weeks. So let's dive in. And move very briskly. Very quickly. Over these several marks. The first mark. Of saving faith is its object. Christ. It must be in Christ. And all of the things that we talked about. With substandard faith. They showed us the various ways. Where Christ ceases to be the object of our faith. And some other thing does instead. Beloved it is Christ and his righteousness. The real Christ. We will not say that all who use the name Christ. Really do hold To the true Christ. And we talked about this when we talked about knowledge, didn't we? That we must have particular knowledge about Christ. Jesus will say to the Pharisees, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The old apologist, Dr. Walter Martin, paraphrased that, interpreted it by saying, Unless you believe that I am the eternal God, you will die in your sins. That's true. That's a good word. That's good divinity. It must not be the Jesus down the street. You remember when the uh, when the disciples are standing there in Acts chapter one, and Jesus is taken up from them. You know, they do this, and the angels or this angel appears to them, and they're looking. Jesus, he can't be seen anymore. He's been received into the clouds, and they're looking. And the angel says, why are you gazing up into heaven? Why are you doing that? This very Jesus, literally in the the original, it's emphatic. This very Jesus shall return as you've seen him go in like manner into heaven. Yeah, that's right. That Jesus, not the Jesus down the street. That very Jesus. He must be the object of your faith, beloved him your faith must rest upon him you must roll upon him he must be your confidence he must be your fear he must be your dread he must be that fairest of ten thousand that bright morning star that one who is alone altogether lovely no one but him will do your faith must rest in him and so when we think of him what do we think of well, in rapid fire, we think of him as the true God. We think of him as the true man. We think of him as God-man-mediator. As God-man-mediator, we think of him as prophet, priest, and king. He's nothing less than any of those, and he is so much more He is a crucified Savior. He is a dying Savior. He is a risen Savior. He is an ascended Savior. He sits at the right hand of God. And of course in my notes I've got scripture verses for all of this. We won't take the time to turn there. You know these things. But you must believe them. And you must come to Him. That one. By faith. And roll yourself upon Him. And place the eternal disposition of your souls in His mighty hand. There is no other that can ascend into heaven for you but Christ. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's turn to one scripture. Let's remember Job chapter 9 for a moment. I don't believe that Job speaks advisedly here. Job we remember although he began in a particular integrity he did not remain in that integrity and descended into murmuring complaining and doubting of God's goodness remember what we said in trembling faith beloved we said that the faithful do tremble Moses said I exceedingly fear and quake remember that remember also in Isaiah 66 to this man will I look he that trembleth at my word what is the trembling from then The trembling is from the great distance between God and ourselves, but the trembling is never in doubt of his goodness. And Job, well, Job doubted of God's goodness and will be rebuked at the end of the book. Remember what Job said. I'm going to put my hand on on my mouth. I'm not going to speak anymore. I've spoken unadvisedly in chapter 40, but then after a little bit more of God speaking, he's a little bit more... uh, open and so what does he say he says well there's only one more thing i want to say and i'm paraphrasing here i will take my hand off of my mouth for a moment and here's the last thing that i'll say on the matter oh lord please don't ever stop speaking to me right that's what job wanted now what do we see here in 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 the days of his unadvised speech in chapter nine Verse 28, I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, then why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet thou shalt or shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take away his rod from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. And don't you just want to grab him by the lapels and say, Job, there is a daysman. Job, there is someone that you can come to. Job, don't doubt of God's goodness. Remember, remember that in Christ, he condescends to take hold of us both. And it is only in that one, beloved. Otherwise, we're left with exactly what Job says here. We wash our hands with snow water. We make ourselves never so clean, and we are still filthy in his sight. It is only through Christ and his mediation. His work as God, as man, as mediator, as prophet, as priest, as king, as a dying savior, as a risen savior. As an ascended savior, as an enthroned savior. He has everything we need. And no one else does. So it must be him. And it must be him alone. So put away horses. Put away your job. Put away money. Put away the economic engine of the society in which you live. Put away your strength. Put away your prowess. Put away your smarts. Put away your intelligence. And put it all away. And roll upon Christ. Because he's the only one. And all of those other things will fail, do fail, have failed, and are failing They can't bring you there. So that's point number one. Obviously, it has to be the first point. Saving faith terminates upon Christ. It has Christ as its object, but not just any Christ, the real Christ, God, man, mediator, prophet, priest, king, the dying Savior, the sacrifice, the risen Savior, the ascended Savior, the enthroned Savior, the interceding Savior savior him alone so uh, do not allow these truths because of their antiquity and familiarity to cease to take your breath away hold these things with such sincerity that you find a catch every time you think of them They're not just doctrines. They are that which receive, unite, and draw us to that very dazement. And so, from time to time, beloved, as you think of Christ, remember, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Remember with the Shunammite what you're supposed to remember. Verse 9. I hope I can get through this. <laughs> what is thy beloved more than another beloved? O oh, thou fairest among women. Why what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? Why do you speak so highly of your beloved fairest? Why? My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices and as sweet flowers. His lips are like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble. Set upon sockets of fine gold, his countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, this is my friend, O oh, daughters of Jerusalem. And that's why we advertise him above all others. That's why. It's to that Christ we come. That is the object of our faith. Not just these doctrines, but Him. The one who fills them up and gives them flesh and blood. We come to Him. And nothing short of Him. So that's point number one. Point number two. Saving faith is a self-denying faith. It is not a self-actualizing faith. Beloved, we live in a day... When everyone is out to actualize themselves, we even use those words. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is a self denying faith. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We'll begin our reading in verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father and with His angels, and then He shall reward every man according to His works. Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste death of death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It is a self-denying faith. That's what the Christian faith is. It is all for Christ and none for me. Everything for Him. And nothing short of everything. It's not, well, I've got to reserve a little bit for myself. I have these favorite things, these little darlings that I want to reserve for myself. I'll come to Christ as long as I can. Fill in the blank. And whatever you fill in the blank with, that's your idol. You've not yet come to Christ. The Christian faith is a self-denying faith. This is what rises up out of love for Jesus Christ. Third, saving faith. So much more to say on that point. Turn to Ezekiel 14. I'm not done with that point yet. Ezekiel chapter 14. The Christian church is telling people today that they can have it all. They can have Jesus in the world. They can have whatever it is that they want. Listen to 14. Ezekiel 14. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, every man in the house of Israel that setteth up idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols." Therefore say unto the house of Israel thus saith the Lord God repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations for every one of the house of Israel or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel which separateth him from me and setteth up idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet to inquire or to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself and I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and will cut him off from the midst of my people and you shall know that I am the Lord. Beloved, we have to take those idols that are in our hearts, those things that we reserve for ourselves uh, where we refuse to deny ourselves. We've got to take those idols like Josiah of old did we have to gather them up we have to grind to powder and we have to spread them over the brook kidron put them in the kidron valley and be done with them whatever they are anything that keeps you from christ anything that keeps you from obedience anything that that even in its tendencies draws you away from that get rid of it it's not worth having around it will keep you from christ idols of the heart. Now we can move on to number three. Saving faith is a humble, sin-confessing, sin-forsaking, and sin-mortifying faith. Saving faith is a sin-confessing, sin-forsaking, and sin-mortifying faith. Or can I say it this way? It is a repenting Faith and repentance, they are joined together in the scriptures. We'll remember the apostolic preaching from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. He will say to the Ephesian elders there that when I came to you, here was my message. Ready? Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn to Daniel 9, we could turn to uh, Ezra 9, we could turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, we could turn to Psalm 119, 53, 136 and 158 where we hear of the abhorrence that we ought to have for sin in ourselves and even in others and that we abhor sin so much that we would be of the habit of confessing not only our own sins but other men's sins as well. It is a humbling, sin-confessing, sin-mortifying faith, this saving faith. And it is fraught with a promise, isn't it? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back in my evangelical days, I did not have a teacher to help me with that passage. And so I thought that my forgiveness was conditioned Upon my confession. Having come to the realization. That that is the scariest proposition in the world. And completely contrary to the scriptures. We interpret that verse to mean. That the habit of believers. Is to confess their sin. And the promise of God is to forgive them. And that's framed with two verses eight and ten. The one which speaks about no necessity for a sacrifice. Or. Or. Like, I don't have original sin, or I haven't sinned. No, this is a false accusation. Nope, neither of those obtain. We are guilty in Adam and guilty in our actual transgressions, and the right response to that is, Lord, show me my sins that I might confess and forsake them, and I might put them to death. That's the sign, a mark of saving faith. Oh, it may not be a perfect mark, We may not hold that perfectly. There may be chips in the bricks, like we said, but they're still bricks, aren't they? Number four, saving faith is a faith that works by love. Saving faith is a faith that works by love. That's how the apostle puts it explicitly in Galatians. It's how James will teach us of true saving faith. (coughs) In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let's turn there. Sadly, one of our heroes of the Reformation, the good Dr. Martin Luther, had a bad interpretation of James chapter 2. He could not see how in his own mind to reconcile James and Paul whereas James actually reconciles James and Paul together in verse 23 and the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. James doesn't pit himself against Paul, so I don't know why would we want to pit James against Paul. What James does is is shows, which is exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything, but faith which worketh by love. This is all James is saying here in James chapter 2. He's saying what the scripture says over and over and over again, which is, You know what, beloved? Talk is cheap. A man can say he has faith. And that can be the only evidence of faith that he has. I tell you I have faith. James says, stop showing me by your words and show me by the things you do. Show me the marks of true faith in what you do. And James will bring up a couple of things here. Uh, Notice he will say... Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar. Now, some might be tempted to say, well, that's a poor choice of words. Let's not accuse the Holy Ghost like that. Let's remember these are inspired words. And so there is a justification by works that is not meritorious, but when those works are evidences of a lively and true faith because we're still justified by faith, that righteousness is imputed to us as we read just two verses later. If James will lay those two things down side by side, then let's lay them down side by side as well. Right? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works faith was made perfect or bought or brought to its full maturity, its full expression. James will say back in verse 18, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show show thee my faith by my works. And then he'll mention Rahab the harlot as well, that she was in that same way justified by works. That is, her faith was made evident by her works in that she, some will say lied, I can't believe people say that, but they do. Not that she lied, but that she sent the spies out another way. In other words, James picks the thing that she does that is upright, that is correspondent to faith, and that's what he focuses on. He modestly turns away from the lie that she told, as often we do when we're talking of the saints of old, right? David came to Achish, and Achish said to him, Hey, where did you make a road today? David lied. He didn't tell him everything that he had done. Whereas he was destroying the enemies of Israel. He just spoke very broadly and generally and didn't answer the question. Right? So we modestly say, well, David did tell a lie there, but we remember the great things that David did. When we talk about the great King David, we don't often speak about his sin with Bathsheba. We often speak about him being the sweet psalmist of Israel, of organizing the temple worship in his day, of those wonderful things of his writing, Psalm 51 Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of thy loving kindnesses. Cast out, forgive my transgression. We remember the words of faith, don't we? We remember those things that he did that pointed to saving faith. That's what James does here with regard to Rahab. She sent the spies out another way. Why would she do that unless she believed that Jehovah was the true God and that the Israelites were going to take her city from her and that she needed to be preserved and her house by faith in Jehovah and by making a deal with Joshua and his representatives? Why would she do that? Why would she betray her own house, her own city? Because she believed in the Lord. And she'd left off loyalty to Jericho and developed loyalty to the Lord. And it shows in what she did. And that's why James mentions it. Beloved, is your faith a working faith? Talk is cheap. That's the great divide in Scripture. Often we hear it's between the head and the heart. Well, we want affections, but those affections must be married to knowledge. It's not really a distinction between the head and the heart. Often the description that scripture sets out before us is between the lips and the mind or the heart, because talk is cheap. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, teaching as they do for doctrines the commandments of men. That's the disconnect. James is saying, Beloved, don't have that disconnect. Make sure that the faith that you profess is the faith that you work. So no, James hasn't descended into merit religion. Otherwise, we wouldn't have verse 23 there. No, verse 23 simply reminds us that true saving faith is a working faith. So what was that? Number five? That was number four. One, two, three, four. So then here is number five. It is concomitant to what we just had, but it's an advancement of that principle. Saving faith is an obedient faith that rises from hearts purified by faith. And the sign of that obedience being faithful obedience is given to us in 1 John chapter five. Please turn with me there. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Now, there are two ways interpreters have understood that over the centuries. The first would be that this is parallel to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In other words, that we keep his commandments. By the way, these commandments, they're not grievous commandments. We can we're, we can receive them, but not as grievous things. Or, and this is my understanding of the passage, that in our acts of obedience, we are not loathing, but rather embracing the commandments of God. There is a hearty affection in our hearts, faithful hearts, for the commandments of God. Not only are they not grievous, this is a a synecdoche, a part for the whole, but really what he's saying is by way of modesty that we love the commandments of God. How do you feel about God's commands, beloved? May I say, this particular mark of saving faith gives me much by way of anxiety when I look out at the Christian world, much of which denies that the law of God is for the people of God. This is indeed the love of God. What does he say? We keep his commandments and they're not grievous to us. They're not hard and burdensome things. And that's literally the word that John uses here. Something that weighs us down. Oh, I'll obey the Lord lower and lower and lower. I'm, you know, living in the joy of the Lord. Rather, the commandments of God are lovely things. Lightsome things. And I do want to look up a few scripture references with you here. Let's start in Psalm 119. We'll just do a brief survey through this psalm. The first is verse 45. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. May I say that's opposite from what many are being taught today in the church. Verse 46, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Verse 47, and I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. We turn over to verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey, to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. 127 Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea above fine gold. 128 Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way. One forty. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. 143, trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. 174, I have longed for thy salvation, and thy law is my delight. In Romans chapter 7, verse 22, the Apostle Paul, writing as a believer, will say, I delight after the law of God and the inward man. Notice it's not an outward delight. It's an inward delight. In fact, we might say that the Apostle Paul in that passage is very grieved over something. What's he grieved over? That the delight that he has in the law of God and his commandments are not actualized in his behavior. That's where his grief lies. His grief does not lie in the law itself, but in his lack of ability to obey what God has said. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, for the sake of time will not turn there. What do we read there? We we hear that there's a day coming when God will take the stony heart out of our flesh and put a heart of flesh In our flesh. And he says he will cause us. According to that heart. To walk in all of his ways. That our hearts will embrace. The law of God. And so this obedience that we're talking about. When we talked about a working faith a few moments ago. Now we're going to advance that working faith. To say that it is an affectionately working faith. And Jesus will say in the Upper Room Discourse twice, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Well, beloved, we we need to think about that and what our response is toward the commandments of God. Because we're going to say truly with the psalmist that the commandment of God is exceeding broad, Whereas many will tell us today that it is exceeding narrow and it affects every area of our lives, and that the enemy of our souls also has a set of commandments and they're advertised and we're bombarded with them all the time. What does the Bible say about family and what does the world say? What are the commands of God pertaining to a family structure? family organization and what does the world say have you embraced the biblical concept of family with love that's saving faith finances and debt what does the world say use other people's money pay usury right what does the bible say The borrower a servant to the lender. I'm going to exalt you, my people. I'm going to make you the head and not the tail. You know how I'm going to do that? You'll lend and not borrow. Have you embraced being debt-free? Because that's what the Bible puts to you, with love. (coughs) Rights of private property, the Eighth Commandment, and how that is administered by governments, especially in our day. We have rather the Robin Hood version of government. We rob from the rich and give to the poor and everybody claps. That's not biblical. It's not what the Bible says. And yet we keep voting for people who will tell us they will take our money and give it to other people who don't work for it. Or they'll ship it overseas to people we don't even know. And they'll do this and that with it. All sorts of unlawful things. We call it theft. It doesn't matter if a government does it. It's still theft. Beloved, have you embraced the biblical concept of private property? Do you show respect for, others pro- for, for the property of others? And do you keep your own and maintain it in God's sight? And do you, when you go to the ballot box, do you vote in such a way so as to bring that down? Beloved, this is loving the commandments of God. Issues of modesty. Modesty. Not only of dress, but of behavior regarding humility and comportment. People can be dressed modestly and behave immodestly. Right? When we receive the seventh commandment from the Lord and we think of issues of modesty and the world is telling us, put yourself out there. And we think of rather what it means to be modest. Do we love that? What's our affection toward the commandments of God? Pride goes before a fall. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. James 4, 6 through 10. Is that what our society teaches? No, it's just the opposite that the proud are the happy ones. Like the prophet Isaiah will say. And now we call the proud happy. Where's the love there? What direction is it going? May we say the wrong direction? Do we love humility? Number six. A right use of leisure and entertainment. We call it recreation for a purpose, don't we? That we would be set back in order in our minds. No, we can't work seven days a week. We need a Sabbath off. No, we can't work every hour of every day. We need downtime. We need leisure time. We need that. And God has designed it. But we used to call it recreation because we understood it to put us back in order for our service to God. Now everybody's working for the weekend. And we love our time off. And what do we do? We protect it. We guard it. We put a fence around it. Do we love service? And do we use recreations in the right way? Do we understand the concept of labor and Sabbath under the fourth and the eighth commandments? Weekly order and Sabbath keeping. Again, how do we order our weeks? Do we have a goal in mind? Do we have an end in mind with the ordering of our weeks? Is it indeed that Sabbath? And do we love the Lord's day? I pray you do and I pray that I do. Giving God his due in everything, in worship, in our calling, in our vocation, even in our, as we said, recreations. True saving faith embraces the laws, the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, the counsels, the ways of the Lord. I fear that there are so many in the Christian church that are being taught that the commandments of God are very narrow and not exceeding broad. In 1 John chapter 5, the Lord will tell us through his apostle that we love the commandments of God. They're not grievous to us at all. The joy and rejoicing of our hearts, as it says in Jeremiah chapter 15. Another part of this that is mentioned in 1 John 5 is loving the people of God, loving the brethren. He who that loveth him that begat loveth also him that is begotten of him. And so another mark. Ancillary to this in First John chapter 5 is we're keeping that second table of the law. We're not insisting on things for ourselves as we spoke earlier in honor, preferring one another instead. Everybody running in their right lanes. We have positions of authority and submission in the home, in the church, in the state, in our areas of commerce. We're running in those lanes, loving each other as we should as superiors, inferiors and equals. We would rather ourselves, First Corinthians 6, be defrauded than profane the name of Christ instead. Right? That's part of that self-denial that we talked about earlier. So we set a good example. We, we will not hide ourselves from our own flesh as it's put in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Our brothers and our sisters in Christ will take priority over our own wants and perceived needs. And then finally, we will remember those two great commandments. We will love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength under that. This is a part of those affections that pertain to the commandments of God. And then I have one more. I I suppose this is number six. Saving faith is a worshiping faith. And this worship according to the commandments of God. Saving faith is a worshiping faith. As we said earlier, when we were talking about the priests, we have recognized, haven't we, that worship is service to the Lord. We don't come to be served. We come to serve. Let's remember the illustration. Ruth and Boaz. In the middle of the night, Ruth goes and she gets up close to Boaz at his feet and she pulls his skirt over her. For his part, we don't know how long it went by, but Boaz wakes up and he's surprised that there's a woman in the threshing floor and that she's laying at his feet with his skirt pulled over her. What is she saying to Boaz? I'm here. I'm going to be your servant. I'm going to be your wife. I want to serve you. I want to make your name great. I want to advance your estate. That's why I'm here. He says to her, You are a most virtuous woman. Everybody knows it. But I'm not going to send you away empty. Lift up your apron and let me fill it with grain so you can have some for you and for your mother-in-law. I can't think of a better description of a worship service. We come to to pull the Lord's skirt over ourselves and we say to him, Lord, I am here to serve. I'm here to serve you. You're worthy of so much more service than I can bring, but I'm here to serve with what you put into my hands. And he says, thank you. I will receive your service. It is good that you're here. Now, let me fill your apron when I send you away. Sadly, many focus on the apron and, its, and the grain in it rather than the service. What did you get out of the worship service? Wrong question. True saving faith is a worshiping faith. It is a serving faith. And we'll close then with Micah chapter 6. We'll begin our reading in verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with bird offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Well, we we remember verse 8, but we don't remember what leads up to verse 8. What leads up to verse 8 is the natural man's look at worship, coming under the conviction of the greatness of God. What will God receive from a paltry soul like me? Oh, I know, I know, rivers of oil. Not enough? Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me think. Okay, okay. Thousands or ten thousands of bullocks. Surely the Lord will receive that. That's a great sacrifice. No? Silence? Not enough? More? Okay, okay, wait a minute. Let me think, let me think. I know, I know. I'll give my firstborn. I'll give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Surely the Lord would be pleased with that. That's what carnal worship looks like. And there's, no, and there's no breaks between the beginnings of that and the end of that, beloved. When we read of that going on in the ancient world, don't think of those as bloodthirsty creatures doing that. Think of them as those who were offering the greatest sacrifice they could imagine their children. What's the answer of the Lord? He hath shown thee, O man, listen, listen to the commandments of your God and worship like you've been taught. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good. What doth the Lord require thee? To do justly, love chesed, covenant, fidelity, and walk humbly with your God. Hear him. Don't advertise the greatness of your spirituality with the greatness of your offering. The offering has already been given. It is Jesus Christ and it is accepted. And so come in him and do what he commands. True saving faith is a worshiping faith. And the true believer in Christ cannot absent himself from church lightly. He will come and worship. But he will worship also in his closet. And he will worship with his family. And he will worship as he rises up and as he lies down, and as he walks by the way. So, these marks of saving faith, let me give them to you in rapid fire succession. First of all, saving faith is centered upon Christ. Secondly, it is a self-denying faith. Thirdly, it is a humble, sin-confessing faith. Fourthly, it is a faith that works by love, Fifthly, it is an obedient faith that rises out of a heart purified by faith, loving the commandments of God. And sixthly, saving faith is a worshiping faith. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee. We are thankful that thou dost accept us in Christ Jesus. For we confess that in none of these particulars does our faith measure up. We are left, Lord, with the fact that we are unprofitable servants. We have done only what our duty is to do and that in an unprofitable way. And that the goodness of thy mercy, the greatness of thy grace is indeed far beyond what we could ask or think and certainly beyond what we could earn or merit. Yet, Lord, we pray that we might find these and other marks of saving faith replete in how we serve thee, in what what rises up out of those hearts purified by faith, that we may give a good account to those that ask us of the hope that lies within us and that we may adorn our profession of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray, fill up that which lacks, grant us greater and deeper faith grant us that forgiving faith that we know that we owe to every man as we think on our our, our brothers and sisters and what it means to love them and with with the disciples we we pray unto thee with Luke uh, chapter 17 O oh Lord, increase our faith we pray these things in Christ Jesus name. Amen